So it's summer. I love summer. Mostly because I despise the cold. That's awful. Cold is awful. Summer is warm. And warm is good. And when it's warm, you can sit outside. I love sitting outside. Coffee on my patio, chilling by the pool. And honestly, who doesn't like chilling poolside? Well, I actually recently met a friend who said he doesn't like chilling poolside. But he's weird and that doesn't count. So, yes, everybody in their right mind loves chilling poolside. You know, sitting out in the sun for long periods of time, just hanging out... What clothing you wear is nice and light, doesn't cover much. You're exposed to the elements, the heat, the blow of the wind. Occasionally, you might get in the water just to sit there for a little bit, and then you go back to just hanging out on the nice cobblestone walkway. You know, there's even a dude in scripture who lives a life like this. There's a public pool, he's just chilling, nothing to do, and life is just awful. Sorry, we all have our pet peeves, and one of mine is when my pet, my cat, just scratches at plastic. It grates on my soul like a rusty tree's grater that not even Freddy Krueger would use. But that's beside the point. Alright, so this guy, he'd be chilling poolside in Jerusalem, and like I said, his life sucks. You know, hard shift there. Tend to be funny. So, like I said, nice light clothing, which isn't covering anything, so he's exposed to the elements and the heat and the dryness, and he's just sitting there uncomfortably on the cobblestones. Yeah, life is awful. Because he's been broken for 38 years. And heard a sermon about this today. And then I started thinking, well, what could I say about this guy? And it brings us to an initial question. Actually, I'm on the wrong page of my notes. Where are we going to go? Ah, there it is. So what can I say about this guy? Well, number one, he wants to get better. We know this because Jesus walks up to him and asks him, do you want to be healed? And a dude replies, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And when I am going, another one steps down before me. That suggests, what are you, stupid? Of course I want to be healed. I'm at this pool. And by the way, the pool, Pool of Bethesda, has a reputation for every now and then, cute little angel angel will come down, put his finger in the water, stir it, ripple, ripple, and oh my gosh, an angel touched the water, I can be healed, and only one, like golden ticket, first one to get to the water, he's the one who can go running out because he's healed, and this poor guy is never the first one, so that sucks, so Jesus asked him, do you want to be well, do you want to be healed? The answer is obviously yes, because he's at the pool. He could have been somewhere else. Could have been lying in a ditch, street side, rooftop, just giving up on life, waiting to die. But he's here. And what's interesting, I think, is this is superstition. There's nothing in the Hebrew scriptures or anything that God has actually revealed that this pool would have... This ability that angels even reach down and do this. 
And so he's got a belief that is born out of desperation. Because he is so desperate to be physically healed from this infirmity that has left him an invalid for 38 years, which is one year short of my entire lifetime, he's willing to believe or try anything in order to be better. I could say a lot here, but just watch an average TV show or just think about basic human psychology in the world around you, and you'll see that that's not actually far-fetched. People who are so desperate to be healed are willing to try and believe anything. Alright, so it's pretty well established that he wants to get better. Number two, why? This is actually not an obvious question. Oh, he wants the pain to stop. Oh, okay. Then what? Live? Well, yeah. Live how? Live why? That brings us to number three. Oh, he wants to live a respectful life. Okay. Sorry, pause while thinking. Okay, so he wants to live a respectful life. We can uh, define that a number of ways. Most people just don't want to be well and go off the deep end and destroy themselves. You know, drunken orgies and drug addicts. And hey, I want to just be a highway robber. And live out in the wilderness like I've already been doing. With no money, like it's already my situation. Not knowing when I'm going to eat, which is already when I eat. People want to be have respect and status and position and a roof and stuff. Shop at, you know, Dillard's or at least Gap. Maybe Target. It's interesting where Jesus finds this guy. When he's sick and desperate, he's in the house of a false idol. When he's well, Jesus finds him in the temple. Where a respectable Jew at a festival ought to be. Okay, so he wants to live a respectful life. Socially respectable. Socially acceptable. He's in the temple. He's ready to serve God like a good Jew should. Serve God how? Well, Jesus actually mentioned this. When Jesus finds him in the temple, says, See, you're well. You can live now. Sin no more. Sin no more? Oh, okay. What's that look like? Well, we got to turn to Psalm 40. You can hear my pages rustling. There we go. Psalm 40, starting verse 2. He, God, drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, set my feet upon the rock, then making my steps secure. Sound familiar? Jesus literally took a dude with broken legs, told him to stand up, and he stood. Secure. Literally pulled him up out of the pit of destruction, the miry bog, not a clean pool. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Kind of what Jesus is wanting to do. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and doesn't go astray after a lie, like you've been lying by that pool doing for a while. 
Okay, Jesus says, go now. Well, not to go now, but he says, sin no more. So, verses 2 through 4 of Psalm 40, that's what God has done. So, the sin no more part, verses 6 through 8, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. In other words, to hear what you would say. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So in other words, sin no more is basically follow the greatest commandment, which is more logistically fleshed out in the Ten Commandments. Look in Exodus for that. And dealing with the three temptations. Temptations in the wilderness. They're in both Matthew and Luke. Slightly different orders. But basically, it's a temptation regarding provision. A temptation regarding security or position or power. And a temptation regarding freedom. So, what does sin no more look like? Deal with those temptations. In the process of doing so, observe the Ten Commandments. And in the process of doing so, fulfill the greatest commandment of love the Lord your God with the entirety of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, how do you do that? Number four, sounds all well and good. Let's make it a little bit more practical. Well, go to James, chapter 1, verse 27. Keep yourself unstained from the world. Great. That's nice and nebulous. Greek, cosmos. Latin, cyclum. It's this idea of keeping oneself unstained, unsullied, uninfluenced by the prevailing worldview of the age or context within which you live. Swing this back to the story. We have a nice little contrast. Jesus tells this man, look, you're well. Go now and sin no more. You're standing here in the temple, ready to serve God, wanting to live a respectable life. All right, go do that. And then the Jewish leaders yell, Sabbath! Sabbath! So they yell at this guy, it is unlawful for you to tick up your mat that you've been sitting on as a broken, destitute, starving, smelly, emaciated, Invalid. You're not allowed to pick up that mat. Are you really serious? Did you just see what happened? Dude got up. And that's what you're focused on? Sabbath! You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Look in Exodus 31, verses 12 through 17. Or Exodus 20, verse 8, Deuteronomy 15. Commandment number three. Keep the Sabbath. It is a holy rest. It is unlawful for you to pick up your mat, they say to the guy. It is unlawful to work. Because work equals not rest. And we are required to not work on the Sabbath. Lest we displease God by breaking his commands. Okay. So, sin no more. Keep God's commands. God has commanded us to not work on the Sabbath. But that's an ironic misconstruction. This brings us to number five. God. 
there's a lot to say about the Sabbath. A lot. But just consider this. Mark 2.27. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There are other works on the Sabbath recorded in Scripture. Matthew 12, verses 1-8, through as well as 9-13. through And then, Jesus responds to these Pharisees. My father is working even until now. God's working on the Sabbath. Well, what work is God doing on the Sabbath? That makes a Sabbath for man. To man's good. It's got me thinking about Shabbat, which is, you know, how you would say Sabbath. And Shalom. Now, to me, they sound... That sounded arrogant. To my relatively educated, inferential, but yet, admittedly, uninformed in Hebrew etymology, ear, it sounds as if Shabbat and Shalom share a common significant root, that Shah part. And it's also a common phrase, Shabbat Shalom. I know that Sabbath, Shabbat means rest. I know that Shalom means peace. I looked them up, trying to see if there was an etymological link, found F-I-R-M, something, something, something Israel-related ministries. Firmisrael.org. So, according to them, go look it up, Shabbat, rest, okay, comes from a deeper root, Shevet, which means to dwell. Now I can't read my own note. Oh. Wondering if I should unpack that. You know, think about this concept of dwelling somewhere, staying put, not moving around, not being a busybody, not having to deal with just sitting there, establishing your life, being at peace in a sense, being secure. Shabbat Shalom, to dwell in peace, to abide in the full peace and communion with God. Because there's also this idea of peace. Peace isn't just the absence of hostilities. It's this idea of deep communion, friendship, relationship, lack of interpersonal strife that you have with someone else. So, Shabbat Shalom, to dwell in peace, to, like I said, to abide in the full presence and communion with God. Well, this can take us to Psalm 15. Who may dwell with the Lord in peace? Well, let's look at that. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks the truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue, does no evil or cause calamity for his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised. So he recognizes evil, calls it out, and who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, in other words, taking advantage of people, does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved, will stay and dwell in peace on the holy hill of the Lord. So, what work is God doing on the Sabbath? 
Well, he's providing the mercy which is necessary to facilitate someone growing into the type of person of Psalm 15. In other words, Jesus, with this man at the Pool of Bethesda in John 5, working on the Sabbath, God is establishing a way for this man to live securely and at peace with God and thrive and flourish. There was something that was impeding him, hindering him. God removed it. That man went to the temple, ready to serve God. Jesus said, all right, serve God. Sin no more. So here's the question. What impedes this? Do you want to be, well, do you want to be able to pursue a respectable, a righteous life? Okay, God will facilitate that for you. Somehow, I don't know what your circumstances are. A lot of us here in the relatively affluent West, they're more psychological than anything. I recently spent time in the third world country where it's actually pretty logistical. Like people like be starving, living on dirt roads. If they have water, it's not exactly potable. Like if you've actually been to a place like that, you know what I mean? Like, there are things that make living what we would call a righteous life, being the kind of person of Psalm 15, a challenge. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be able to pursue righteousness? Okay, God will facilitate that for you, somehow. If you simply stand up and be ready to walk. (laughs) But avoid sin. Or rather, the exercise of your own will, for your own sake, as you see fit. Lest, as we go back to, towards the end of the last thing that Jesus says to this guy. Alright, see? You healed. Sin no more. Lest something worse happen to you. Oh, what is Jesus saying there? Well, we can go to Hebrews chapter 4. I encourage you to go to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at that. All right. Jesus has done this. You want to be able to live well. Not, all right, great. Here you go. Go do it. I'll help you. But don't sin. And we know what sin is. Because if you do, remember, life is eternal. Life is eternal. And having been confronted with this, with the face of God, what he can and will do for you to help you live a respectable life. If you sin, then you will experience a fate that is ineffably worse than the fresh hell in which you have already been living. And that's just natural consequence. So, I guess that's what I would say about the man at the pool of Bethesda. Hope that made sense and was clear.